Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 208 of the Quickie Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Hopkins, and thank you so much for being here today. Let's get right to it. My guest today is Mr. Jim Bull. He is the CCO and co-founder of Moving Brands out of San Francisco. They also have four locations total. That's San Francisco, Zurich, London, and New York. Pretty sweet. Travel around, business expense. Well played there, Jim. During this episode, we talk about growing up on the Isle of Wight, and if you are like me, you will Google that to find out where it is. We also talk about moving brands, starting the company, and spreading it to all of those four different locations. We talk about early days in moving brands, and when they first started, how they experienced an economic downturn, and how they got through it, how they managed to power through that. We also talk a little bit about uh, working with Jamie Oliver, and this is actually a really funny story. So <laughs> just let me know what you think after you listen to this one. We also then get into how this whole new remote working situation is affecting him and the rest of the company at Moving Brands. He also shares with us the Nokia project that they won, how they won it, and why it is so special to them. We also talk about Netflix and some of the work that they have done for them. This one's loaded, so let's get right to it. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest, Mr. Jim Bull. Here we go. Welcome to the Quickie Podcast, the daily interview show where we talk to graphic designers about their journey to the creative field, and we do it in 30 minutes or less. So, are you ready for a Quickie? Morning, Jim, and welcome to the Quickie Podcast. How are you, sir? Yeah, I'm very good, thanks. Great to be here. Well, before we dive right into it, are you ready for a Quickie? Sure, why not? Always ready. (laughs) Perfect. Let's start with some of the toughest questions first here. Briefly tell the listeners about yourself. Uh, Well, yeah, I'm Jim Ball, co-founder and chief creative officer Mm -hmm. at Moving Brands. Um, I founded that business back in, when was it? 20 years ago now, so I've been 1998. Nice. And uh, gradually been building it out there to be doing great creative work for great clients and pretty pleased with how it's going so far. Sounds pretty good. Awesome. So I just want to sit on that just for a second here. Tell me a bit more about moving brands. Like what was your original idea of, of moving brands and how did you, what was the path to getting from day one, we're open for business to where you are now? Well, yeah, I mean, some of it's in the name, which some people love and some people <laughs> don't like so much. Uh, actually, in our early days, we were using moving brands as a descriptor for what we did. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we used to think about it as sort of two things. One is literally back then we were part of a set of businesses that were involved in branding and communications and lots of different types of um, 
media, let's call it. Okay. And we kind of built ourselves based on that. You know, we, we, we came from a background of loving brands, but we also love communications and advertising and we love making films and some of us dabbled in music and all of those sort of things. So it's very much about how you bring a brand to life. At that time, not many branding agencies knew how to do motion or put things into a digital environment or bring things to life in a physical space. Those were done by more specialized sort of places. Mm-hmm. And so we really wanted to make a place that could do all of that all in one in one shop, so to speak. Um, and then the other way of thinking about moving is like the emotional movement you can give to a brand, like how you can get a brand to actually connect with people and, mm-hmm. and bring a bit more emotion to things. So that was the original idea. And then over the years, we've kind of built that out. So we've got a lot of different things in what we do. Um, uh, yeah, and that and that's how it's going. The other thing to say is, you know, that that original concept was right back at college. There was a group of us working with each other, um, and we always had a plan to sort of set something up. And mm-hmm. we thought it was going to be more motion based or like filmmaking, storytelling. Uh, then we really loved, yeah, we loved drawing logos. We also loved branding. We loved all these things, and it was kind of like, okay, maybe we can make something that kind of does a lot of all of this stuff, like um, branding and communications and how to build value in it in a brand and and create difference for people uh using lots of different skills and lots of different uh techniques and skill sets definitely so where are you are you mainly a remote studio are you do you have like a a one location where you've got a bunch of staff like what is the current situation oh we've got um uh we're in four locations right now so we've we've got the the home of the original business in London, which uh-huh. is where I was to start with. I'm now in San Francisco. Uh-huh. Uh, but we've got a studio in London. We've got one in New York and we've got one in San Francisco. And then we've got a smaller uh, studio in um, uh, Zurich as well. So we're, we're, we're a bit in, in lots of different places. And over the years, we've been in other places too. And then come out of those places. We had a place in Japan for a while. We've been, in, we've been, we've always been sort of, uh, uh, quite progressive and aggressive about where we are and, and, you know, being in different markets to get, to get work to happen. That's um, cool. But yeah. Four different locations. That's a lot to keep track of. Yeah. There's been a lot <laughs> of, uh, over the years we've become pretty expert in remote, <laughs> remote working <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, time management and, uh, you know, we've got these sort of like in, in film industry, you get that sort of, uh, the golden hour where the light's really good. We kind of get that across our studios. We have time where, everyone's awake and there are these sort of crossover time periods of about three hours where everyone's available. So there's a lot of meetings that happen at the beginning of my day in San Francisco yeah, at the imagine. end of the day for everyone in Europe. So yeah, a lot of that happening. So, um, yeah, we've become really good at that, which also means we've, we've become really good at that working with clients. So, you know, often, um, we're working cross studio for a client. So, you know, some of our clients obviously like, a local studio working with them uh, but others see great value in having different skill sets and different people all augmented together into a team to kind of bring a project to life so we're, we, we've got really good at that over the years we're flexible both ways on that good. yeah mm-hmm. um so jim i want to kick this back in time a bit and i want to ask yeah. you about your childhood what was your childhood like do you feel that you had a creative childhood that sort of steered you in this creative career direction uh yeah it's a good question i i maybe just talk about where i grew up a little bit because i do think it's relevant yeah everyone's part of who they are is where they're from right 
as much as we try and run away from it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I grew up on a little on an island actually in in the UK called the Isle of Wight, and I think there was something about an island upbringing it sounds exotic right i wasn't running around like <laughs> hunting animals and <laughs> doing all that sort of stuff it was it was quite tranquil and a very beautiful place to grow up but because of its sort of um closeness uh-huh. uh, for instance we used to talk about the rest of the uk as the mainland like this <laughs> the mainland like the mainland yeah and um so i think i from a very early age had a sort of desire to tackle the mainland if that makes sense so mm-hmm. i had a lot of direction in me but i wasn't um as academic as some but i seemed to have some talents for drawing and and being creative music was a big thing for me when i was growing up and i don't know if i really had a creative upbringing but what i did have was parents that didn't say no to any of that mm-hmm. they didn't push me into it either they certainly don't have creative backgrounds but there was permission. I think basically because they didn't really know what they were doing. <laughs> and, <laughs> Nobody uh, does. <laughs> yeah. And so I think they just allowed me to be as creative as possible. So basically going through, I even remember at middle school and then going up into uh, big school, as I like to call it, but like high school and all those things. Mm-hmm. People let me uh, be and take creative subjects. Uh, I remember when I had to choose A-levels, for example, you're only allowed to choose one creative uh sort of module the other two had to be a bit more academic but for some reason they let me pick two that were a bit more creative i did art but they also had this module called design which was actually like wood wood uh making and you know like uh craftsmanship and all those sorts of things okay. so i call that kind of design now but i kind of wangled it so i got to do both things i still don't know why they let me do that because they didn't it wasn't normally allowed but for some reason i've had permission to sort of gamble a bit on being creative and it, it seems like it paid off right on so did you have like an aunt or an uncle that was in that creative field that could sort of show you what it was all about or when was the first moment that the the switch was flicked and you went oh yeah design that that's the direction yeah i i actually think i yeah i didn't i didn't have that i i, I had, my uncle was like a, a baker so he made like wedding cakes for a okay. living uh my father um, worked in a thing called Westland Aerospace at that time, but he was making like helicopter parts and nice. all of that sort of thing. So pretty handy, pretty crafty. I remember him like, you know, first time he showed me how to use a hammer and a screw and all those things. So it was a practical sort of part to the way I was brought up. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but it wasn't really that. I just, I think um, I had it in me somehow and it was recognized and I loved to draw and I loved to uh, put paint around. I picked a camera up really early you know, I wanted to make music videos to start with, and then I got into music, and then yeah, there was just a lot of permission there, and a, a lot of permission to sort of express myself in that way, and it never got taken away from, no one ever, ever said no to that, so I think that's the main thing. But yeah, not a big thing. I did have tutors, though, that were really important. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's so long ago now that I forget their names, but I definitely had, uh, in what we called middle school, uh, a tutor that l- let me draw lunch times and sort of hang out and sort of do do quite a lot of that stuff. And then when I got into high school, I had uh, a tutor that let me be very expressive. I had some very awkward moments with other students where <laughs> they were actually talented and drawing like these amazing paintings. I remember this one girl, she did this amazing like hand sketch, like pencil, mm-hmm. graphite, 
uh, drawing of uh, someone in her family. And I was in awe of this thing because I can't draw like that. And she presented that and got kind of mediocre kind of evaluation from the tutor. And I turned up to answer the same brief and I just folded bits of paper with like curved folds in them and stuff like that and talked Mm -hmm. about what that was. I was quite good at talking about what I did and I got really good grades. And I remember afterwards being in the, being in the art room uh, after school and, and drawing and doing more stuff. And I could hear her complaining to the tutor about why I got such a good response <laughs> from, from them and why she got a mediocre response. And they just sort of said, well, he's doing more creative things. You, you're more talented, but he's doing creative things. And then when she came out, she realized I was there and gave me a, a sort of an apologetic look, but it kind of made me realize it wasn't just the skills you had. It was, it was also how you apply them. I'm, I'm a great believer in getting on with things, being a good way to get stuff done. That's... It's not, it's not all raw talent for sure. So how you apply them. I love that because that's, it, it's not down to raw talent and natural talent. It's down to, the creative problem solving and creative thinking. Well, that's how it panned out for me. I mm-hmm. think for other people it's different. There's a raw talent there. Oh, there's a number of uh, different ways to do it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I don't know, maybe I've never quite found my actual raw talent, but I've kind of dabbled in lots of things and I've turned those into things and then turned that into a career. And now I do that kind of stuff every day. And, um, but I do think it's like the theater of it, the storytelling of it, the way it's presented, the timing of it. I'm a great believer in timing. Um, and then how you sort of bring all of that together. I actually get a little bit annoyed. Maybe it's jealousy <laughs> by the sort of vision of the creative yeah. as this sort of like, you know, person that has, div- uh, you know, sort of a, a brainwave and it's like amazing and no one else could have thought of it. I'm, I, I'm not even sure I really believe in any of that. I think, it's just getting on with things. That's what I like. Mm-hmm. Just getting on with it. Mm-hmm. So Jim, is there one particular design or illustration or ad or something like that, that you distinctly remember being influential to you in this career path? Yeah. Well, I talked before a little bit about music being one, one of my other sort of passions when I was younger and actually the link between music and design is was really big, particularly for me. What would this, this have been, you know, through the late '80s and 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 the early '90s? So there were definitely. I'd always been into it, uh, design. Like I recognised that it was a thing even before there'd been conversations to me about that being a subject area. It's like mm-hmm. I quickly realised everything had been drawn, designed, thought up by someone. Mm-hmm. And actually, it takes a little while to get there, doesn't it? It's sort of like, <laughs> oh yeah everything's had someone design it but at the same time you're sort of a little bit told at school that there isn't you know well this is back then it's different now I think everyone wants to be a creative but back then it was like it was a bit like well there's no real work in that is there particularly if you're from a small place like the Isle of Wight I mean because actually there wouldn't have been a lot of opportunity there so it felt really risky but to me it never made sense that well how can that be risky when every single thing on the planet is being designed by someone yeah exactly Uh, but anyway I'm I'm diversifying I I for my sins really like Depeche Mode (laughs) and um, I definitely remember a strong link between loving music and then the way that was 
I use marketed now, but the way that that was uh, a creative endeavor beyond just the music mm-hmm. struck me really, really hard. I mean, the live shows, the visuals, the lighting, the album covers, the singles, the videos. There was a guy called Anton Corbain, I think is the right way to say his name, Dutch photographer, who's very influential on me, uh, who used to do a lot of Depeche Mode stuff. And uh, that was the first time where I actually put it all together and then started thinking about that like a brand. When you don't really ever want to think about a band as a brand, mm-hmm. in a way. But if you think about it, it's the same. It's it kind of the same 100%. stuff. It has a look, it has a feel, it has a story, it has an agenda, it has a, it has a temperament, it has all these things. And that's mm-hmm. kind of what a brand is. So I think those were the first sort of moments where I started to piece that together. Which actually, considering I was so creative, was quite late. You're talking about the Violator album, maybe a little bit before then, Music for the Masses and uh, and Black Celebration. So you're talking like late 80s through to 1990. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's pretty late, actually, in, in working that out. Um, no, but, but that was really the moment. It's very easy to appreciate the and notice the pieces of the creative that you enjoy. But it's a completely different thing to see it as a package, mm. to sort of view it that way. Yeah, definitely. But I remember I, I definitely had these big questions in my head, like uh, why do music videos look so beautiful but TV doesn't, for example, which is <laughs> all flips now. And then and then because I hadn't realized there was difference in budgets and uh, they're different sort of practices and all that kind of stuff. And then it really used to annoy me. I used to get this really early on where the poster campaign for a film or something would have a certain visual and a certain logo and then the title sequence for that film wouldn't use it. I used to get so annoyed. I was like, wait, <laughs> it's so true. Sort of... <laughs> and so I think I was always craving a bit of like consistency, like creative concept or like creative endeavor in something that applied to everything it did, not mm. just the filmmaking process, but then everything in and around it. And the things I love the most seem to have that in it. Depeche Mode was like that. Stanley Kubrick was like that, where posters, the pre-visualization, the script, the music, ev- everything was important to the way that, that that came across. Even the way he thought about himself and mm-hmm. held himself. Hitchcock's another one where I'm, I'm just in awe of Hitchcock. I mean, I've been rewatching a lot of it recently. There's some dubious, uh, there's some dubious uh, stuff in it, it now when you when you rewatch some of them. <laughs> but if you forgive it for its its time, yep. Uh, just just beautiful. And the way he thought about himself as much as the piece, as much as the script and the relationships between all of those things. I think mm. it was really beautiful to see all of that working. Definitely. Harmoniously. I can imagine that being definitely disappointing when an ad campaign and the poster series for a movie, you know, because there's so much energy and effort poured into creating the title for that visual. It makes no sense at all. Why it wouldn't be translated to actual film and all other points of media for that. So I'm glad that it seems to be changing. Yeah, I mean, and sometimes it works, right? Like some points of some things are that they are completely different all the time. I think with some of the first things, I mean, when we first got together, beginning the moving brands journey, we used to talk about Star Wars, the, the brand, mm-hmm. and how actually, you know, for us, Star Wars and then some other amazing uh, brand at that time, I, I don't know what, you, like Apple or something, mm-hmm. you, you actually look at them, they're, they're good at the same things. They tell their story really well, they... They tell their history really well. They reinvent themselves really well. They're, t- they're thinking about all the different layers within that story world, we used to call it. Like, mm-hmm. what's the story world of this thing? 
And so Star Wars was a, a kind of way of motivating us to think about how you might do branding in a different way. And that's how it sort of opened up into this uh, creative business that that's that's doing so many different things. Mm-hmm. But yeah, those early influences were were good. I mean, there are other things as well. You know, um, people like Milton Glaser, Saul Bass, uh, Toscani. I used to really love his stuff. I do like stuff that's got a bit more concept to it. Like it's not as it's not as much about design execution as it is the concept of it. I can forgive uh, a lot in a design if the concept's good, mm-hmm. but I can't forgive a lot if the concept's not good. Like no amount of grid is ever going to solve something <laughs> without a concept. No amount of grid will solve it. <laughs> yeah, but, but not everyone agrees with that. You know, for some people, design is grid. The concept is grid. So, uh, you know, I get that too, but, you know, mm-hmm. hey. Let's not get too geeky on it. Yeah, if it looks good and it feels good, then job done. Yeah, I think so. Or job done to a certain extent. To a certain extent. If something's got something else to it, like a higher meaning, that's always good. Oh, definitely. No, I agree with that one. So, Jim, the next few questions I have for you take you down part of your career where you've likely made some mistakes, learned some lessons, and I want to pull those horrible stories out and share the lessons learned with the listeners here. But I yeah, promise, how long have you got? Yeah. <laughs> At least the rest of the day. <laughs> yeah. um, but in the end, we'll turn around. We'll end in a happy place here. Yeah, yeah. So, so the first question I want to get to is, what has been the most challenging period of time in your design career so far? Why was it challenging and how did you get through it? Well, I think there's been a lot because my design career is also – um, starting and running a business. Mm-hmm. So those two things are like really um, tied together for me. Definitely. Uh, you know, I, I graduated in uh, uh, 97 and started the business in 98. Mm-hmm. And it's essentially had, you know, the, it's the same business then and just growing and sort of adapting all those things. So most of the things for me that were, you know, might be talking about design, but actually they're sort of business things. So, you know, setting up that first studio, then like realizing we needed employees then realizing we need project managers. Then we had a downturn in 2000 and it got really, really hard. So we've become quite hardy at downturns. Um, opening a studio in Japan, shutting a studio in Japan, opening an SF, continuing to build an SF, opening in New York there's there's so many sort of challenging moments in that i mean the so um, it's it's a bit of a hard one because the moments that were really challenging and then you just get into a new one and there's a new challenge so they <laughs> they're all the same amount of effort sometimes that's a very small thing and sometimes that's a very big thing but mm. yeah i think the first economic downturn was the most challenging for me in 2000 or around that time it, it hit us a little bit I think it hit us a little bit earlier than some. Um, we we were doing all kinds of great things. We also were always messing around with technology and making new products and different mm-hmm. things. And we just uh, worked out this way. We had a systems integration patent for satellite broadcasts. We worked out a way to put a video camera with a laptop and could and a satellite phone and could do remote broadcasting from remote locations. And this is uh, quite a few years before that became a a real thing. Mm -hmm. 
this thing was valued at one point um, at quite a lot of money. And within three weeks, uh, that all just went. And that was my first lesson in like, you could have something that's got great value, but you can't control the economy and and all of those sorts of things. And so that that was pretty bad. And we, you know, that's my first experience in having to let people go. And back then we were still in a mode where quite a lot of our employees were friends. So I had to let oh. friends go. Yeah. Super hard. That's a big lesson. It's kind of like, yeah, there's some separation you need there sometimes, which is which is just for your own sanity. Um, so yeah, they're quite they're quite businessy lessons rather than design lessons because you know all all the design and all the challenge there is kind of like just to me it's all fun. Client likes something good. Client hates something good. Um, we're pleased. <laughs> Either with way, it. it's an answer. Yeah, it's kind of like you're always reinventing. It's kind of like someone once told me that the only sure thing is change like and I, I believe that and you've got to keep adapting and all of those things but yeah i definitely think that first economic downturn i, I learned a lot was most challenging for me mm-hmm. there was definitely there was definitely a moment where it was like all right this is this we might not get through this one but we we tightened our belts uh, did a load of stuff kept winning work and, and kind of got through it and also earlier on than that though there was another one we we were only we'd only been going a few like a month or so mm-hmm. And um, when we started the business, we basically started it with a couple of laptops and enough money for a deposit on a studio. And <laughs> nice. we blew all the money we had saved between us. <clears throat> blew all the money that we had saved between us to, uh, to get this studio. And then we had a month to make enough money to get the next month's rent. <laughs> and we, we had this uh, client that we'd almost signed and we were waiting and we were waiting and waiting. And we actually got to the holiday break and they hadn't signed up for it. And I remember having a conversation, basically, like, if this doesn't come in, we're closing before we've even got through our first month or so. It mm-hmm. might it might have been two months, but it's something like that. And then I remember, like, I think it's, like, on the 23rd of December or 22nd of December, they basically signed it off. And that was the way we kind of got going. And it was like, man, it's this is going to be quite difficult everyone looks at like having a business is like oh yeah that's cool oh you've got an old your own studio it's like yeah there's so much work that goes into that goes into all of that so many moments where you know it's it's risky very risky so yeah yeah, lots of challenges in in the business side of it geez so you're like days away from like well guys a for effort let's wrap it up yeah i remember thinking i was gonna be having my like holiday meal or holiday dinner with the family and trying to work out how to tell them I just closed the business. And then two <laughs> days before that was a different, you know, it changed. So again, you've... Oh, what a moment. Yeah. 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 Kind of. I think so. Quite small in a way, if you think about it, but then if that had happened, no moving brands, no like thousands of people over the years that, that would have been part of that. None, none of the workout and, you know, interesting. I wonder yeah. what I'd be doing now. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> so for this next one, Jim, I want to get a little bit more specific here. Um, take us to a specific design or a specific project that you were a part of that did not go well or did not bring the desired result. Um, what was that like? How did that feel? Can you take us to that story? Yeah, I was thinking about this. I I got one that I do like, uh, as a story. Uh, do you know who Jamie Oliver is? Yeah, very well. I have basically all of his cookbooks. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, we, we, we started doing quite a lot of work with him and he's on his, when he started getting a bit more digital mm-hmm. um, and we just reinvented his website and we were doing different stuff with them. And we had this idea about like, Oh, why don't we make a game 
<clears throat> why don't you make a game on your website that's literally just a fun thing for people to play and he you know he was he was up for it and we came up with a proposal that wasn't that much money and in those days we used to do a lot of stuff that was about you know as much about telling our story as it was making money <clears throat> and so we came up with this <laughs> crazy game which had a little ro- a robot floating in space and food floating towards it and you basically uh caught the food in your like pincers and that you had to just get as many as possible so it's like the old uh, game and watch kind of games where you do you remember those nintendo game and watch little lcd mm-hmm. handheld things so you're basically like catching things as they come towards you we called it puck he used to say pucker a lot so we called it puckatron 3000 <laughs> or something like that just stupid but one of the things we wanted to do was um him to do all the voiceover so i wanted him to basically come in do a voiceover and kind of go great or that's awesome and you know his kind of voiceover and all these little bits of audio that would get triggered as you're doing stuff in the game so he agreed to it he was like my schedule's really tight uh we just have to be in and out i've got two hours and i was like okay okay let's do it let's do it and everyone kept checking with me because we didn't have time to like hire someone to do it and i kind of knew my way around a bit of music and a bit of technology and you know, I used to shoot a lot of films and all that sort of stuff. So I felt pretty comfortable in doing it. Set it all up. Uh, did it in the edit suite because that was the most soundproof room we had. He came in. And at that time, this would date it for you. I was using Minidisc to record it all. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever used one of those things, but they were notorious for the pause record. Not really telling you what it was doing very much. So I did this whole two-hour like um, voiceover with him. Um, it was like great and we were both laughing about how good it was and da, da, da. And he left the building and then I thought all right, I just I'll just start listening back to some of it and I realized that when I thought I'd been recording it had been paused and when I thought it was paused it had been recording so I had nothing I basically I, I just had all the in bit in between bits of me mm-hmm. saying oh can you do that again can you can, can you try it again can you can you sort of uh, you know all of those bits and um Okay, just just to pause for a second there. That moment that you realize that you've just sat in with Jamie Oliver for two hours and he's got a super tight schedule for this voiceover <laughs> stuff. And then you hit play and you like what's going through your mind the moment you realize that you have recorded the opposite of what you meant to record? Well, it's just like, what the heck? What the heck are we going to do about this now? You know, I was just like a bit. Well, firstly, I also felt really stupid. <laughs> so yeah, for sure. I don't know. It was, just, it was just bad. I mean, looking at it now, it's just funny. It's kind of like just a funny story. But yeah. at the time, it was kind of like, oh my god, this is really bad. Like we'd really struggled to get him there, and then he eventually sort of come in and done it. Uh, actually, the worst thing though was telling everyone else. <laughs> you know, I had my other co-founders there. I was like, uh, you know that voiceover I just done? I didn't record any of it. And they're like, what? None of it? I was like, no, there's not enough there to like make this stuff out of. So what I had to do, what I had to do though, was basically ring Jamie Oliver, and kind of like get him to redo it over the phone. Yeah. Um, and this is at a time when phone telephony was was hideous as well, and and also not really let on what I was doing. <laughs> so I basically said to him, "Oh, that was really good. I really love the time you said that," and sort of tried to have a little bit of a conversation with him and get got him to like re. Basically, I was like, "Oh, can you just do a few more?" And he was like, are you recording? I was like, yeah, yeah, I just need a few more pickups and sort of like slid my way into it. Um, and it actually it actually turned out better for the game, though, because it sort of had this sort of like 
gritty sort of sound to it. It sounded mm-hmm. a bit more like a, a rubbish robot version of Jamie Oliver or something. <laughs> but it's cool. But it's like he's you know, it's a more jovial kind of thing that didn't that didn't go well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just remember one of those ones. I think it was because it was a hundred percent on me. Quite often the same goes well. It's just because for some other reason, you know, there's a change, the client side or, you know, the the the, the CEO's uh, changed on the client side or they've got mm-hmm. a new agenda or a new strategy or, or or any of those types of things. But that one was just like 100% on me and it turned out all right in the end though. I need to yeah. find that little game. That is funny. So when, do you guys still do work with Jamie Oliver? No, nah, we haven't worked with him for, for years. He got, he got really big and, and uh, famous and all that all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, yeah I haven't done anything for a little while. Okay, but so there was like... a time when he used to invite us to his restaurants. And he, actually, we used to have parties at Moving Brands, and he came to a couple of them, which was always which was nice. But, um, yeah, uh, not so that's much anymore. Fun. Oh, that's a great one. I, lo- I like how it ended good, though. It ended good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But there's some moments of uh, a little bit of fear there. Yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> yeah. All right, Jim, what are you... Uh, actually, this is kind of a fitting question for the times, I guess. Um, mm. What is something you're struggling with in your career right now? Well, you know, COVID-19 and uh, working from home and self-isolation and social distancing, whatever we normally call that, is is a bit challenging. Less, mm-hmm. less so for the business. Actually, it's it's amazing to me how quickly we've adapted like I was saying before, we're already across quite a few different locations and we Definitely. all talk to each other and we work in teams on a project to sort of do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's actually been really good, you know, jumping on a Zoom um, and uh, doing all that. And then these big meetings where there's like 30 or 40 people all in one sort of video call. It's it's, it's really great to be managing to do all the things that we that we normally do. But it, 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 it is challenging for sure. You know, our clients are having to adapt and and work in different ways. But it's also bringing up um, creative opportunity, you know, things that clients need to talk about, the ways that they might need to go to, uh, the type of media they might need to use, a lot of stuff that they would normally do physically, they're having to do digitally now, so helping them work out how to do those things. Um, But it is weird. It's definitely weird just being at home all the time. I miss the closeness of contact that you get in a studio. Definitely. So there's a little bit of a challenge there. I also think your own thoughts are more intensified all the time during this period for some reason. There's less distraction, which in one way could be really powerful, but I can imagine if you get that a bit wrong in your head, it could be it could be uh, quite good. So um, not good, the opposite of good. It could be mm-hmm. could be quite bad just like for personal for personal well being. So I'm trying to keep an eye on me and my family and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, that's that's a sort of uh, mm-hmm. part of it at the moment. I don't know how you're finding it, but it is pretty different, right? No, the same. In my, I would say the new situation because I have three kids that are upstairs right now, and I can hear them right. stomping around and running around. Um, and my wife's growing her business. I'm working on this stuff. Like it's um, just balancing it all, and I, mm-hmm. I find that it's the environment is more distracting now. I don't have those spaces of calm and quiet to really think through things and let ideas develop and things like that until nine o'clock at night when the kids are in bed. Yeah. So the time that you have that or when that time happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm finding the same thing. I mean, I don't have kids. It's just me and my wife here. 
so I'm at, I've actually got the opposite where there's a lot of like quiet space. She's off doing mm-hmm. stuff. I'm off doing some stuff. She's just spending my time while I'm at work. I'm respecting the time that she has. And actually, there's there's quite a lot of like um, t- to me, it seems like there is a lot of time. I suppose mm-hmm. that's just the kid dimension. I'm sure it's totally different. If yeah. You've got- well, Jim, I'm um, happy to trade for a week or so. Yeah, sure, maybe. Yeah, why not? <laughs> quite fun. Um, but. Yeah, I think the time is, is is I'm finding that I I seem to be doing more stuff earlier and later, and it's mm-hmm. kind of the middle of the day that is my evening now, if that yeah. makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, sort of, I'm get, I'm really interested to see how many of these sort of behaviours. I'm all I'm also really like impressed by how quickly we've adapted all of us to this. Um, it, it's sort of it's kind of interesting how quickly we adapt. Also, how willing we are to do that, and that's mm-hmm. that's obviously because we want the world to be a better place and those sort of things. But it's it's quite interesting. It'd be it'd be really interesting to work out how that works moving forwards. Like how many of those behaviours stay with us? You know, how that's many people I'm will go? Oh, actually, I prefer working at home. Can I work at home all the time and all of that kind of stuff? Um, yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to that change that's that's going to happen too. But mm-hmm. as we said, you know, it's a consistent thing. All right. Well, I've grilled, grilled you on the tough stuff for long enough. I want to turn this bus around. I want you to to tell me about a project that you were a part of that you are the most proud of, one that just makes your heart sing. Yeah. I mean, it's really cool. There's a lot of early on ones. But again, for me, it's like there's business stuff and then there's creative stuff. But yeah. like business-wise, when we first started winning projects that were, um, I suppose you might say, global businesses. Mm-hmm. That was really amazing. I remember, I think the first one we we got, we started to get Vodafone as a business. We started to make a few little ads for them and different things. But it wasn't really dealing with the brand. It was basically applying the brand. But we got a bit of a track, track record of working with them. And then Nokia was the next one that we got where it was like, oh, actually, you know, we're being asked to reinvent the Nokia brand here. Um, and that was an amazing kind of thing. And then the one after that that was always sort of talked about was HP and our mm-hmm. effort to to reinvent those guys and getting so far with it. And we, I think we went through three different CEO changes and all those sort of things. So I'm really proud of like the way we've adapted and accepted and moved into that kind of work and done that maybe at times where we weren't big enough really to do it. Certainly with Nokia, I remember that they were like, look, we, we'd done a sort of a review, a digital review for them, like how they performed and how many different shades of blue they were using. And basically <laughs> it was a real mess and we wanted to like, let them know. And they were really impressed with that. And they kind of started asking us, well, what would you do with the brand? And we had a few different sort of conversations with them. And it actually turned out they wanted to actually work with us to do the, to, to do the brand. And they could see us as younger, like, um you know hungry sort of creative business that they were going to get a lot of stuff from us that they wouldn't necessarily get working with one of the normal i used to call them the dinosaur branding <laughs> so this the, is something that you and your team had noticed this um lack of consistency with their branding and you documented this and you shared this with them before you even were doing business with them well, no, no, it was a piece of work with them, but it was okay, it was okay. a piece of work they came to us, but it was a piece of work. Actually, it came from another uh, another partner. I think it might have originally been that they went to Bibliotech, which is one of our friend sort of businesses in, in London, really talented bunch of guys. And they sort of said, well, actually, moving brands might be better to do with this because it was all about consistency across digital 
mm-hmm. platforms and motion and you know what they do in, on the end of ads versus what they do digital versus print and sort of just looking at it as an assessment. So we sort of did that bit of work and they commissioned us to do that bit of work. It's fairly small, but we sort of over-delivered and did lots on it and got into these other sort of broader questions about what they could do. We've always been quite good at like, you know, nurturing the work, let's call it. Uh, and then, yeah, and then it got to it. But then when it actually came down to it, procurement and all those other things sort of kicked in and were like, who are moving brands? They're a bit small. What's their annual turnover? What's their, you know, all the stuff you have to answer to get these bigger bits of work? And it actually turned out that they wanted to work with us creatively, but we weren't the size and scale that they needed. And so it was a bit, I was a bit like, oh, well, we haven't got that piece of work. Uh, but then Ben, one of my co-founders said, well, why don't we just go back and tell them who we'll partner with in order to give them those bits? And so we sort of said, uh, okay. So he, he rang Landall, big, big branding agency of a type that I mentioned earlier. Yeah. And, um, cause they had, you know, cause Nokia was saying you don't have a global network. Uh, you're not big enough. You you don't have the financial stability that we're looking for. Because if we spend a lot of money with you, we want to make sure you you're around by the time we, you know, got through that and all that. So Ben sort of said, well, why don't we just? Because we knew people at Landor and we'd done work for them in the early days. A lot of our earlier work was about building mm-hmm. work with the other branding agencies. So we used to make them look really good in digital and in moving and all of those sort of things. And we kind of said, well, why don't we just bring them in? So that's what we did. But and credit to him, because I was kind of like, oh, well, we can't do it. Whereas he was like, well, we can if we think a bit outside the box and bring in another partner. Mm-hmm. So we did that. And then they went, oh, that's good. They do all the global network and they provide all of that stuff. You're in the mix doing the creative sparky stuff that we need. Yeah, let's do it. So that's how we then got that piece of work. Mm-hmm. Of course, we, us and Landall then fought over who the real uh, – who, who owned the client and all those mm-hmm. things. But we ended up working with them for quite a few years. So that's, that's, that's that, that was great. That's and then awesome. we've sort of done that a lot. So they're the business ones. But creatively-wise, um, I'm really proud of uh, Netflix, mostly because uh, anyone I say those words to uh, uh, basically have it in their, either in their pocket or on their remote or mm-hmm. – or wherever, wherever it is. So the the recrafting of that of the Netflix wordmark um, that we did quite a few years ago now, which then ignited into lots of other work. Um, uh, it's something I'm really proud of because you know it's my mum's my mum sort of uses it every other day, and people have it all the time, and you can kind of point at it and see it and do all of that kind of stuff. So that's one of the ones that I'm most uh, most proud of, really. Oh, and it was like one. simple and succinct. It wasn't like redoing the whole brand. It was mm-hmm. basically we needed logo that works. Our old one's not working. Yeah, we've tried to draw it a number of times. Can you help us draw it? And then that's and then that's what we did. Um, we came up with a lot of our ideas for them, like strap lines and different ideas as well. But the the, the logo was the thing that stuck. So I'm most proud of that. That's awesome. I love that one, Jim. So you've reached the point of the show for the ask it forward question. This is where I have a question for you from my last guest and you get the opportunity to ask a question of my next guest. I'm not going to tell you who they are, but you can ask them anything. So my last guest was Ken Barber. He's a type designer, letterer and author and an instructor out of Wilmington, Delaware. He's with house industries. Mm -hmm. Uh, They just launched a book recently, actually. So definitely a nice book. Um, 
he wanted to ask, and now to sort of put some context to this, him and his wife have slightly different accents. So the pronunciation of certain words um, d- it creates a little bit of conflict, not not negative conflict, but, you know, things that will sort of bother his wife. And say, that's not how you say that. You say it like this. So right. he wanted to ask. Well, you, I can relate to so you know, I can relate to that. I, cause I, I can have, tell. <laughs> I have this British accent and I'm continually sort of having to second guess the correct pronunciation to get my point across. And that's why I love um, this question. So, for you. yeah, I can relate to it. Is there a regionalism or an accent that you have tried to stop or get rid of based on something that uh, somebody has pointed out to you? So the one example that he gave was that I say, when I'm talking about crayons, I say crayon. He says crane. 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 Oh, crayon. Yeah, what do I say? Crayon. Crayon. I think I say crayon. Crayon. Yeah. I say crayon. Yeah. Wow, that's strange. Why did you do that? Because <laughs> I'm Canadian, eh? Ah, there you go. <laughs> So is there a regionalism or an accent or, or a pronunciation of something specific that you have tried to stop based on something someone pointed out to you? Uh, I don't think I've tried to stop it, but I have definitely don't have the same accent that I had when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you spoke to my dad, uh, you'd, you'd hear it more. And so once I start doing this, I'll try and do it a little bit. You'll hear it in my voice more than maybe when you first started talking to me. Because I've, I've gone from a, an Isle of Wight ish accent which is basically like a country kind of british accent okay so a good word for it is world you know the world yeah Yeah. where there's a a definite sort of you are in it so it's like world like it's got Mm -hmm. a slur to it and so yeah there's a country sort of accent there but as soon as i went to london i seemed to lose it i didn't do it on purpose but i started speaking like a cabbie so it's a lot more like, so I went from like, oh, that's a really nice thing. Why don't we, <laughs> yes. why don't we, um, why don't we all go down to the beach and make a nice fire? Yeah. Fire. You know, yeah. it's all like that. Then I, and then went to London. Suddenly I just started speaking like a cabbie. So I was like, all right, uh, when are we like going to the pub? It was very, <laughs> you might not hear the difference, but I hear a big no, difference I hear it, yeah. in those two things. And now I've spent, I don't know, it's actually coming up for a decade in America. So I've got this, I probably sound really British to you, but when I go back home, people are like, why are you talking in an American accent? And I've just picked up so many of the words and so many mm-hmm. of the mannerisms. It's got a slight Californian thing to it sometimes. Yeah. So I can't say, I, I say water now instead of water, which still bothers me, and butter instead of butter and all of those things. So mm-hmm. I don't know if I've intentionally done it. I've always been, I've always sort of adapted myself uh, quickly not through a thought. I don't think, oh, I need to adapt. But I'm quite comfortable, you know, sit me in a room, any room of any type of people, any type of, like, background, any, any of that, any region. I'm, I'm, I'm always really comfortable. But I tend to, like, instantly fit in a little bit or try to. But I don't know if I'm trying. I think I just do it. I don't know what's happening. Like, last time I went to New Zealand... I came back with, <laughs> with a slight New Zealand accent. There's this great interview, me giving an interview there that my wife watched because she didn't come with me the first time I yeah. went. And she was like, why the, why the hell are you speaking like that? <laughs> I, I, think I just do it to like mimic what the other person's doing. It makes them yeah. feel more comfortable. Yeah. But it's I psychological really mirroring. That. It's a good thing. 
Yeah, maybe. Maybe that's <laughs> what it is. I'm not. I'm not clever enough to have, uh, to know what the real terms for the stuff is. I just. All good. I just know. It just happens. So, Jim, what is your ask it forward question for my next guest? Well, that one was very jovial. Mine was a bit sort of uh, a, a bit more. De- I mean, because there were lots of questions about um, youth and you know inspiration and all mm-hmm. that. So, I, mm-hmm. I had a question for who is next. Are you going to tell me afterwards? Uh, you'll have to listen to hear their answer. Oh, okay. okay. Um, so, my question for the next guest was: What advice would you tell your younger self? Which is a bit cliched. It's a classic but, one, but it's always good. But it's always, yeah. And um, yeah, I'm really interested in that. Because I'm not sure how I'd answer that myself. But, so I'd be really interested to see the way somebody else answers it. Because then I'll be able to answer it. I'll just copy whatever they say. <laughs> Perfect. Jim, you have reached the end of the Quickie Podcast, man. Thank you so much for being my guest today. It was so great talking yeah, to great you. Stuff. Yeah, you, likewise. Um, pleasure as always. All right, that is the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening and being here. If you are digging what you're hearing here on the Quickie Podcast, please head over to iTunes or wherever you're listening to this and leave a rating and a review for the show. They make me smile. Pretty exciting. Thanks. We'll see you soon.